Well, good morning. I am excited to be with you today and excited to be talking about God's Word, and hopefully that's why you're here too. And uh, just wanted you to know it's a special thing for me, not just to be speaking with you, but I love being in this location. This is fabulous, isn't it? In fact, I, I was thinking as we were singing, you know, it's interesting, as we're watching the words on the screen, I just thought, you know, it, God's redemption is powerful. God, what, what God can turn into clean things is fantastic. And I was just thinking, you know, imagine, don't, please don't imagine too hard, but imagine, I mean, how bad some of the things that people have seen up here on the screen have been. Today we're seeing God's word, we're singing praises to God. Isn't that cool? Man, God can just turn anything for him. That's pretty neat. Uh, I want you to uh, bear with me for a minute, if, I, if you would, uh, a couple things. First is, it's a privilege to be here in part to talk with you, but also because of just the relationship with the Helmers, and uh, not just with Doug, but with the family. They have a special place in my heart. Uh, I have known them since I was in junior high, and uh, believe it or not, I remember when Emily was born. Now, I feel like a 20-year-old, but that makes me old. And uh, anybody feel my pain on that one? All right. In fact, I remember Lukey, Lukey as we called him, Luke, uh, when he was uh, young enough and just barely could talk, we would ask him, Lukey, where's your tummy? And he lift up his shirt, and uh, thankfully he got over that. But um, I, I just remember those things. Uh, we, we appreciate the Helmers for a couple reasons in my life and my sister's life. One, uh, they have helped us in ministry a number of times, both in counseling aspects, giving us counsel in ministry. Uh, also, just for me personally, Doug was the first one as a deacon to ever ask me to give a testimony in front of, in front of a church. And as a teen, as a sophomore in high school, with fear and trepidation, I talked about Psalm 29 and proceeded to get down and proceeded to rethink whether being a pastor was really for me because of speaking. Uh, it was such a traumatic experience, but I enjoyed it and appreciated that. Uh, and they were both of them are very patient, and they have given us um, the joy, me in particular, I guess, of being involved with their kids. And I would say to this day in confidence, I would not have memorized James if it wasn't for Luke's involvement in my life and allowing me to work with him uh, when I was at seminary. Just a joy that was. Second thing is, just in general, I know we don't know each other. And uh, personally, if you're like me, I find it hard to identify with somebody when they're just a name and a face, and they're here, and then they're gone. So if you'd bear with me just for a minute, let me tell you three things that have impacted me spiritually in my life, and hopefully this will bond us, and I promise you it does pertain to what we're talking about today. The first thing is I was saved at a young age. Okay, N nothing, nothing magnificent there. I wasn't a drunkard or anything like that. And for uh, there was a time, and especially in high school, when I was kind of embarrassed about my testimony. Later on, I realized that any salvation is a miracle. Amen? And I realized that I was saved from certain death in hell to be righteously and magnificently sanctified, justified in Christ Jesus. And that is a big deal, not because of me, but because of Christ and what he did. Uh, second, as far as my own spiritual growth, other than my dad, who was a pastor, no pastor has impacted me towards ministry as much as lay people. Doug and Karen are two of those people. I worked with Doug as a, a high schooler at the place that he worked, Helmer Labs at the time, and I also worked along with Karen, uh, working with the music ministry team as a high schooler, running sound system and things, and learning from them both. There are many other people, other lay people, who challenged me as a teen, how are you going to live your life spiritually? 
What are you going to accomplish for God? And didn't let me get away with just the teen niceties of life and let me just dink around. They were challenging me. And I'm here today in ministry to a large degree because of people like Doug and Karen who have challenged me in that way. Third, my wife is one of my, is my best friends. She's also one of the, the strongest, if not the strongest, influence on my life. If you get to stay for a little bit afterwards, she'll be here with our three kids, and uh, you'll get to meet her, and I would think you would agree after meeting her, she's better than me. So if you like me at all, you'll just look forward to meeting her. The last thing is, uh, during seminary, uh, when my wife and I had not yet been married a year, it was my second year of seminary, uh, something ha- unique happened to me when I was on my way to break uh, at, a, at a place of work. I was on my way to break, walking up a stairwell, and I heard a pop in my right ear, became instantly dizzy, had instant vertigo, almost, I mean, fell over, and it was very sick to my stomach. Um, and I'm going to spare you some of the details, but uh, long story short, as far as some of that, that progressed to where uh, three things were really happening. One, I couldn't attend seminary classes because of the job I was in. Two, uh, instead of just hearing that I had an ear infection or things like that, the terms that started coming up were brain cancer, tumor, uh, brain cyst, things like that, things that you do not want to hear. Um, Three times during that ordeal, I had been counseled, you need to get your affairs in order. I was not yet married a year. Um, the nearest family is 12 hours away, and uh, I'm looking for a job so I can go to seminary. I can't, get, I can't go to seminary because I'm working the job I'm at and very frustrated and praying for God's deliverance. And that prayer lasted nine months. And that was a significant time of honing in our lives that God put us, not to, you know, God, we talk about whether we're clay in the hands of the master. This is one of those times we are on the anvil. You know what I mean? And it's just getting pounded out of you, the stuff that God doesn't want there. And God challenged us on a number of fronts. In fact, it's interesting because chapter 4, which you just went through, right? Please tell me you remember that. Okay, I wasn't here, but I heard it. I heard it on the web, okay? Uh, Chapter 4 has an interesting thing where God asked Moses, do you remember this? Who has made man? Who has made him? Who has made him blind? Who has made him deaf? Do you remember that? That's one of the things in there that just struck me a number of years ago, a few years ago. So as we talk, we're going to get into the subject of deliverance. And I will, I'll promise you I'll finish that story here in a minute um, as we wrap up. But at the moment, turn to Exodus 5. That's our text for today. I'm reading from the ESV today. I'm trusting that if someone near you doesn't have a Bible that you'd be kind enough to share or if someone around you is having a hard time finding it, that you'd help them find it. Uh, we, didn't all, we weren't all born knowing where all the books of the Bible were, so hopefully you'll be patient with people around you. All right? Let's review real quick. Chapter 1, Exodus. We are introduced to the oppression of Israel and the death, pronounce, death pronouncement of the newborn male babies in Egypt. Right? Okay, the descendants of Joseph are there. They're, they're, they're waiting. They're, things are getting bad. We have a Pharaoh who does not know the name of the Lord, who has forgotten about previous generations, and now is afflicting Israel. Chapter 2 is interesting because we have a large life that's compressed very quickly. We have Moses born. He's given into Pharaoh's household. I won't get on the details. He kills the Egyptian, and then he flees into Midian, okay, where he meets his wife. And etc. In chapter 3, in the first half of 4, we have Moses who's called by God at the burning bush. 
And uh, he's called by God to free the Israelites to be his instrument. We have a little bit of Moses uh, pushing back against God's request. In fact, more than a little bit, if you remember. And we're going to see that theme, by the way, carried out into further into Exodus. And that's a fascinating text. Uh, don't be too hard on them, right? Because we would do the same thing. Let's be cautious on that. The last half of chapter 4, Moses returns to Egypt. He meets with, or excuse me, he circumcises his son on the way, if you remember that, by penalty of death if he didn't. And he meets up with Aaron and eventually with the people or the elders of Israel, the leaders of Israel, and they meet with them, the elders meet with them, and they're excited, right? Pretty thrilled. I mean, we haven't seen this Moses guy in a while. He's come back. The people who wanted him dead are gone. He's come back and went, life is tough. And now we have some Moses guy telling us, hey, I'm here. God has called me to lead you out of this wilderness. Yay, things are good. Look at the end of chapter 4 here, just for context. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says this, When Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the uh, elders of the people of Israel, Aaron spoke all the words of the Lord. Remember, Aaron's the speaking part. And Moses did the sign, so that means the staff and the hand and the cloak for the leprosy. He did all the signs and the sign of the people. And the people, what's the word? Believed. So they're apparently, they've heard what's going to happen. They've seen the signs confirming it. And they say, we believe this is from God. This is exactly what's going to happen. And you're going to see the rest of this text where the Israelites just believe 100%, are not shaken, or do not waver, just like Moses. They are 100% in their resolve. Okay. Yeah, I heard some laughing. You, you get the gist. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that they seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. This is a good time. Relief is coming. The light at the end of the tunnel is here. That death, persecution, all that stuff is going to come to an end soon. I mean, the guy's right in front of us. It's not a someday, maybe it's, I mean, he's right here. Good things, okay? Up to this point, Moses is doing decent at obeying God. We understand there's some pushbacks, but he is doing what God has commanded him to do. Okay, And so he's doing a good job. Everything seems to be going well. But Moses' day is about to change dramatically. We're going to see that here in, in, a, in a text. Just when everything seems to be going good. I mean, just met with the elders. They're excited. They believe they worshiped. I mean, this is a good time. Just when everything seems to be going good, everything heads south quickly. Anyone ever had a day like that? Okay. And let's be clear, we're not talking about a flat tire here. We're not talking about a bug in your soup, right? We are talking bad, 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 death bad, all right? In fact, it's interesting because I'm sure we've all had days like this. And uh, I came across, across two quotes or was reminded of them in preparation for this. Uh, one of them was, it tries to capture this feeling, I think. I was excited to see the light at the end of the tunnel until I realized it was an oncoming train. Anyone feel like that? One I saw just a couple months ago was due to the poor economy, the light at the end of the tunnel has been turned off. <laughs> That's a new one on me. Moses is about to experience this sensation. He's about to experience the left turns of life where he's expecting the road to go one way and he finds it goes dramatically a different way. Right? Let's get into the text. For simplicity's sake, I've narrowed it down to uh, four different sections. First, we need to understand that obedience is met with rejection. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me. Verse 1, afterward, after meeting with the elders, that is, 
Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go. You need to remember that phrase. It's, it's used seven times between here and chapter 10. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. By the way, it's interesting. A lot of people miss this part. They assume that let my people go at the end is the same as let my people go at the beginning. It's not. Let my people go at the beginning is let my people go three days into the wilderness to hold a feast. At the end, it's go for how long? For good. It's interesting. A lot of people think it's the same thing. It's not. He goes on and says, the Pharaoh, verse 2, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now listen to this. Pharaoh is not just saying, who's this God you're talking about? He's not talking from a point of ignorance. He certainly knows who the Israelites worship. That's not the issue. The issue is here, who's the authority? <laughs> By what authority are you saying this? If, if I was to come in here and do something similar, it'd be like this. It'd be like, you know, uh, by the way, guys, Bob says the screen has to go right now. And you guys could say, who's Bob? Or, or if I just chose, you know, someone random who, who's just, you know, who does, isn't in charge of this stuff. Hey, you know, Bob, you know, the, the guy who hands out the, the bulletins and isn't in charge of the screen. Bob says to get rid of the screen. Why is Bob saying get rid of the screen? Why would we listen to him? Pharaoh's asking the same thing. By what authority is this God telling me to do these things? I don't think he has much authority here. I mean, Pharaoh's d denouncing God. He's demeaning God or the God of the Israelites. It's interesting. Look further on. Verse 3, he says, Then they said, Who's they? Aaron and Moses. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that, he may that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now look back at chapter 3. Let's reference this real quick. All right? Verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro. Whoops. Am I looking at the right place? 3.18. Sorry, my reference is off here. I have it 18. Maybe it's chapter 4.18. And they will listen to your voice and the elders of Israel. Is that it? Yes. 3.18. I'm sorry. I'm looking at chapter 4. I did have the wrong chapter. It's not the way I thought. All right? And they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him... The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Sound familiar? Okay, he's saying exactly what he was told to say. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Israel will, or excuse me, the king of Egypt will let you go? Will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it after that. He will let you go. Okay, now, we need to keep this in mind. And this is an interesting rub of this text. As Moses and Aaron are making this plea before Pharaoh, we're struck with two things, or I am as I'm reading this text. On the one hand, it appears that Moses really did think something was going to happen as a result of this meeting. We'll get to his response at the, end of this, at the end of this chapter where it seems very clearly he's focused on circumstances more than on the hand or the promises of God. On the other hand, it's interesting that part of the commandment of God was 
not just to, for Aaron, tell Pharaoh these things, but what was Moses supposed to do? Not just with the elders, but with Pharaoh. Show him the signs, right? He doesn't do that in this text. We have no commentary as to whether this is good or bad. The chapter after this, in chapter 6, God does not rebuke Moses for his response by reasoning with Pharaoh. So it just seems to be more of an issue of Moses being more specific, or Moses and Aaron being more specific with, with Pharaoh. Look at verse 4. Well, uh, let's continue. In, let's do verse 3. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey in the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Again, verse 4, But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. How do you like that? We're appealing to you with a holy decree. No, you're taking people away from their work. Why are you bothering them with this nonsense? They need to be working here. You're not helping. Verse 5, And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. People of land are many, they need to be working, you're trying to take them away from their work. Now remember, Moses had asked, let us journey three days away, have a feast. There's no context here as far as when the end of that is, etc. But obviously, Pharaoh, even for that three days journey, isn't buying it. His obedience, Moses and Aaron's obedience, is met with rejection. It's interesting. When God had said, something's going to happen, you are going to deliver Israel... Here he's standing up, doing exact, saying exactly what God had said, and Pharaoh says, no, not, okay. How disappointing is that? Now, Moses is probably facing rejection here, obviously, but he's probably feeling the rejection, and yet things are about to go from bad to worse to worser, if that's, that's poor English, but it works for this context. Uh, instead of deliverance, there's oppression. Look at verses 6 through 14 here. The same day, wasting no time, Pharaoh's a little ticked apparently, he commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. You need to understand, well, we'll get to that in a second. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Straw in the bricks was used to make it more durable, to last longer. So it was a big deal to have it. But the number of bricks that they may that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Notice that? As far as Pharaoh's concerned, what are they idle doing? They're idle doing or talking about going into the wilderness. Apparently, they don't have enough to do. They're sitting around complaining. Let's give them something to do. Right? I mean, this is a forceful, controlling gesture by Pharaoh. We've got to keep them under the thumb. We've got to keep them aware of who the master is here and who are they to be making this kind of request. They're our slaves. Get back to work. Therefore they cry because they're idle. Let us go and offer a sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Do you hear that? Let the work become hard enough that they're so tired they don't even want to go into the wilderness. That they don't even have time to think about other things, pursue other matters. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. 
Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. How do you like that? So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday is in the past? You need to understand that the taskmasters, the taskmasters, excuse me, uh, were of Pharaoh's household. The foremen, yeah, the foremen of the people were Israelites. So when they're beating them, uh, things are bad, and obviously the Israelites are watching this. Okay, so it's interesting. Instead of deliverance, we have oppression here. Now think through this. All this happened not because Moses never showed up in the first place. All this happened because of Moses' appeal. He goes, God says, you're going to deliver Israel. He goes, makes his appeal exactly what God had told him to do. Doesn't give the signs, but they give Moses and Aaron give the appeal. And Pharaoh says, no. In fact, not just no, you've just made things worse. So imagine now, things were bad before. Do you remember that? Things were bad for the Israelites. And guess who it's bad for? Not Moses, but everyone else. How many of you would say that, just in one of these circumstances, oftentimes you would rather take the punishment than someone else? You know that feeling? You say, if you're going to do something, take it out of me, but don't let it be on everyone else. Imagine how hard this is to walk among the people for Moses and Aaron when they're all looking at you saying, listen, buddy, you told us you're getting us out of here, and now things are worse. We believed you. We trusted you. We were behind you. And this is what happens? Thanks a lot. Yeah, keep walking. Uh, you're getting dinner tonight? Not at my house. Instead of deliverance, there's oppression. Look at verses 15 to 21. Instead of success and praise, there's failure and accusations. Look at this. When the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. Remember, these are the Israelites. They came and cried to Pharaoh. Why do you treat your servants like this? Notice there's three petitions to Pharaoh. Why do you treat your servants like this? By the way, saying it like that gives allegiance to him. No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Why are you doing this to us? Life is tough already. Why are you doing this? Listen to Pharaoh's response. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. Why would you say it twice? Strong emphasis here, right? Re-emphasizing the point. You're idle, you're idle. He's already said this before, do you remember? That was his conclusion. You're idle, you're idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Notice, that's not what the, the foremen have asked. They didn't bring that up at all. Moses had brought that up at all, in the first place. Pharaoh's quoting Moses and Aaron. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Reaffirming his earlier pronouncement. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. Ever feel like that? They saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. As they're walking out, 
they meet or met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. Wouldn't that be a nice meeting? I wonder how much of that meeting Aaron and Moses had heard. I'm curious about that. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And have put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, man, you've made us detestable. As we get in front of Pharaoh, he looks at us and goes, oh. You've made us not good in front of Pharaoh. We, we have no clout in front of him. We have no mercy because of what you've done. Further than the more, more than that, he's wanting to kill us. You basically just handed him the sword. Thanks a lot. We're trying to defend ourselves. We're trying to live, and you're giving the guy the sword to kill us. That's not helping. These are from the Israelites, not the Egyptians. Notice that. Moses has showed up to free the people. Pharaoh says no. He says, more work. The Israelites go to Pharaoh, say, please stop. He says, no, you're idle, idle. The Israelites go to Moses and say, judgment on you. How's that for a change? Remember how we started or ended chapter 4? And they believed and they worshiped. Not so right now. Look at the end. Verse 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. God, you call me to do one thing. Something completely different has happened. What's going on? This isn't what I signed up for. This wasn't the plan. This wasn't the road I thought we were going to take. What's happening here? Folks, as we look at this text, I want you to think about our lives. God has called you to obedience. God has said in his word, he will bless you if you obey. And you may be right now wrestling for deliverance, praying for deliverance in some way, shape, or form in your life and saying that deliverance isn't coming the way that I wanted. I'm praying for my wayward son or daughter to come to the Lord and instead they're going further. That's not what I wanted. That's not what I signed up for. You may be in a marriage with an unsaved husband or wife, or you may be with a spouse who's just not wanting to work at the marriage, saying, man, I, I pledged allegiance to this person. I pledged allegiance to you, God, and you had promised to help me, and I'm not seeing the help. What's going on? This isn't what I signed up for. I signed up for you helping me. Where is it? You said you'd help me. Is this it? Things are going from bad to worse. You may be in college or high school in your classes. You may be praying for God to help you. And instead, finding out that instead of getting easier, things are getting harder. Maybe as a young person, you have unsaved parents. One of my heartbreaks as a youth pastor was how many times I heard teens tell me, I can't wait till I get a driver's license so I can come to church. Maybe you're wrestling under some of that and saying, God, I... I'm saved now. I, I, I'm on your side. Where's the deliverance? 
Maybe you're in a job with horrendous work people. May, I don't know, maybe you're wrestling economically as many are right now. Maybe you're down to two days a week of work. Maybe you're just struggling and saying, God, I, I'm trying to be obedient. I'm trying to do exactly what you've said. And Where's the help? Folks, as we look at this text, we have to wrestle with a number of truths. We have to come to grips with something here. And I'm going to foreshadow next week, or, or at least Exodus 6, if you hit that next week. And I, I want to bring your attention just the beginning of chapter 6. Would you look with me there? There's some of my favorite words in the Bible are in this first verse. You ready? But the Lord. That may sound like nothing to you. But we have a number of verses, I would tell you, that would sound in passages that would be very depressing except for those words, or but God. For the wages of sin is death. Is that where the text ends? What's the next word? But. The gift of God. By God's grace, when things are bad, often we read a but God or but the Lord. You see, Moses is looking at circumstances here. He's lost sight of what God is going to do in the circumstances. What glory God can get through this. Let's look at some takeaway truths from this text, all right? First, God's deliverance is often different than what we envisioned or wanted, right? I have a grandfather who uh, was diagnosed when I was in high school with Lou Gehrig's disease, or ALS, and we prayed for God to deliver him from some, of the, from some of the pain and that he would have comfort. God's form of answering that prayer request was to take him early. The day that my grandpa died, he walked a half mile. If you know about Lou Gehrig's where your muscles atrophy, eventually oftentimes people get to a feeding tube where they just, their heart stops or they stop breathing. With my grandpa, we never had that. He was never in the hospital. The day he died, he walked a half mile. We never had to feed him. That was unusual. That's not what we envisioned when we prayed that. But it was God's grace that he did that. Oftentimes, God's deliverance comes in a completely different form than what we would have liked or wanted. We have to be prepared for that. That's difficult because we're not seeing from eternal eyes. We're seeing from circumstantial eyes. We're seeing from eyes that are bound by time and saying, where is it happening? God says, listen, I've got it under control. But it's hard for us to believe that at times. Second, God's deliverance hold to his timetable, not ours. As a planner, for me, this one's tough. Or, or, or how, how many of you would echo maybe my sentiment, God, I'm fine with it being on your timetable. Would you just let me know what it is? Would you run it by me first for approval so I can put Jim's stamp on it? How many feel like that sometimes? I told you in the in this seminary uh, ordeal with my ear, I had battery of tests. Of, I had taken two weeks off of work because of the, the sheer uh, vertigo and things. Uh, weeks stretched to se several weeks, stretched to several months. And still no word on whether I had cancer or things like that. At that point, we had passed our one-year anniversary. I've been looking for a job for nine months. I have a, a bachelor's degree in business. Not one place is calling me back, literally not one, not even McDonald's. I mean, that's just bad, right? And I mean, I'm frustrated. God, I'm here in obedience, 
Where's the answer to prayer? What are you doing? I need a job to go to seminary, but I can't go to seminary because of the job I'm in. I don't know if I have health insurance. I mean, I don't know where my health is at. At one point, I stopped filling out health applications because of something that one of them had there where it dawned on me I can't get a job because one of two things is true. Either one, what place is going to take on a guy, what insurance company that may have brain cancer, right? It's not going to help your bottom line. Or two, often companies don't let you get health insurance for the first 90 days. I didn't know if I had 90 days. That was the truth. And I, I remember crumpling up that resume, that application, just tossing it and saying, that's it. God's timing is interesting. I remember sitting in my cubicle, uh, making calls to people, looking at the clock and thinking, the first day of seminary classes in the fall, thinking, right now, I'd be at this class. A couple hours would go by, right now, I'd be in this class. And I was just talk about low. Here I am in a job I frankly hate, not doing what I'm here for, not providing for my wife, not knowing what's going on. Tuesday was the same way. Right now I'd be in this class. Right now I'd be in this class. Tuesday afternoon I got home. And there was a message on the machine from our doctor saying, this is Dr. So-and-so, please call us when you get back. Called, and the conversation was literally a two-minute conversation. It was very surreal. It basically went like this. We believe you had a, an infection in your inner ear, uh, there's nothing really to describe it. Old people have it all the time. Uh, they literally go to bed one night, wake up the next day, can't hear out of one ear. It's just part of life. You're on the extreme young age of this, but it does happen. In the course of your body defeating the virus, it fried the nerve to your brain. Your ear works fine. You just can't hear anything. It is permanent. It's not going to affect your other ear. Do you have any questions? That's pretty much how it went. And so I clarified, so... Where do I stand health-wise? She said, you're one of the healthiest people we've ever seen who have this kind of condition. Hearing aids won't help. You can get checked out if you want. But, and I have tinnitus, you know, the ringing in the ears. That's going to remain at least three to five tones all the time. Good luck. Any questions? That was it. Now, keep in mind, I started that day not knowing how long I had to live, not just whether I'd hear. So, okay. Wednesday, I went to work. Clean bill of health. Praising God. Wednesday night I got home, I had a message on the answering machine from a place called Finet. I had no clue who this was. I called them and they said, you don't know us. You actually uh, applied to another, a sister organization asking for third shift. Are you still looking for a job? I said, yes. And they said, well, third shift's no longer available. Great. They said, but second shift is. And I said, okay. And they proceeded to tell me all the position, all that would be available with this position. And they were apologizing at every point of the way. We apologize because we're only going to be able to pay you this much, which was about 30% more than I was making. They said, we're apologizing, you know, because we only offer 50 cents on the dollar for 401k. I didn't have 401k. We only have dental with our health plan, not vision. I didn't have health, I didn't have dental or vision. You can't get a promotion until you've been here six months. There's no opportunity for promotion where I was at. I mean, they, they went on and on per, apologizing for the blessings that God had in store for me, that they couldn't give me more. They said, when can you start? I said, how's Monday? And they said, well, uh, Monday's a holiday. How about Tuesday? <laughs> and I said, that sounds good. My manager knew I had been looking, and I worked Monday through Thursday and Saturday at the time. So Thursday morning, I went in, told my manager, she said, that's great, I'm all for it. 
uh, you're off tomorrow, Saturday, let's have a going away party for you, and you'll, you know, I'll, I'll write you a good recommendation saying that you'd give me at least your two weeks notice and all that. And so Friday, my day off, I went into seminary, registered for a full round of classes with a clean bill of health. Next Tuesday, I started seminary classes at a new job with a clean bill of health. And for nine months, I've been asking, God, have you forgotten me? God, have you forgotten me? God, have you forgotten me? What's going on? Pulling my hair out. Till I finally said, God, it's up to you. And, you know, it was just about a week after I said, God, whatever you want to do with me is great. That God said, okay, lesson learned. God's timing is not our timing. God's deliverance is often preceded by a worsening of circumstances. Amen? And demanding of obedience, by the way, with that worsening of circumstances comes some trial. God's deliverance is often brought about in a way that the glory can only be given to him. Do you think in any way, shape, or form that health, clean bill health, that new job, that I got the glory in that? There is no part of that that's because of Jim Patton. Isn't that great? Can't point to that all. I've got so many other illustrations. Man, if you want to talk after the service, I could talk your ear off about how God has clearly dropped stuff in our life where you say this is clearly of God. There is no other way to God be the glory. That's what he's doing here. Imagine if Moses had gone to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, yeah, Moses or Aaron, you guys are such good orators. I'm going to let you go. Sure looked like Aaron pulled it off, wouldn't it? Right now, I don't know about you, but if you know the end of the story, it doesn't look like Aaron and Moses did much of anything. Doesn't it? It looks like God did something. Amen? Big time. Last, it's ultimately not about you. Folks, look at me. It's not about you. The deliverance is not about your circumstances. The deliverance is not about making life better for you. The deliverance is so that God gets the glory. Let me ask you, if you're in the middle of trial, is God getting the glory right now? Or is it only going to be when circumstances are good? Is God going to get the glory in your life? Are you giving praise to God? Are you relying to Him, on Him? God is very gracious to us. God is very kind. He delivers us in His good time. And we're going to see His promises come to fruition in the Israelites. God does honor His promises, right? He does it in His timetable, not ours, right? And it's for his glory, not ours. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, I come before you and I just thank you for this time. God, I know that there are people here who are in the midst of trial pleading for deliverance. God, oftentimes you answer that prayer, you answer that plea with something so contrary to what we want it to be or want it to look like. God, I pray that you'd help us to stand fast in your truth. Not to be governed by circumstances. Help us to, like Hebrews 12 says, to run the race with endurance, to press on, as Philippians says. God, help us not to lose sight. Help us not to look at the storms of life, but to look at you and to recognize this is for your timing. You are going to wring every ounce of glory out of it you can, and that is a wonderful thing. Help us to glory in that. God, I pray you'd buoy us. I pray that you'd help us to have strength. Help us to have strength beyond what we have in ourselves and for us to rely increasingly on you and to fall into your arms in hope. Thank you, God, for
for your kindness to us. Thank you for this text of Exodus and help us in the future to glean more from this text. In your name I pray, amen.